Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Allinger, your host. I'm grateful to you for spending part of your day with me, and I am going to make it worth your while because our guest today is awesome. His name is Gerald Tretavian. He's the founder, CEO of Year Up. Year Up is doing phenomenal work to help young people in our cities get the job skills they need to get on the path for a career. In its relatively short history, Europe has given 25,000 young adults in the United States a chance to escape the cycle of poverty and economic immobility, and Gerald and his formidable team are just getting started. Here's how I found out about Europe. I left Facebook and was looking for something to do that would uh, be positive for people other than those who live in my house. And I called my friend Meg Garlinghouse, who is the head of social impact at LinkedIn. She knows a lot of people in the nonprofit philanthropic world. So I wanted to pick her brain. And she said, have you ever heard of Year Up? She knows that I, while having a soft heart, I have a prickly logical brain and I need to satisfy both of these constituencies before I steer my philanthropic dollars and time toward something that I would want to commit to. Well, I looked into Year Up and what I found out was just incredible and their approach to solving problems was super compelling to me. Consider this. According to the United States Department of Labor, there are 7.3 million unfilled jobs in the United States right now. The majority of these will go and remain unfilled because employers cannot find employees who are qualified to do the work. That's right. We don't have enough qualified employees in the United States. And at the same time, there are millions of young adults who are working way below their potential or not working at all. Now, why are they working below their potential? Thousands of reasons, but suffice to say they don't have either the technical or the social skills to operate in the modern day workplace. Well, Year Up takes these folks who want to work, arms them with those skills, then connects them to employers who need these motivated, qualified employees. It's as simple as that. But think about what it means. It means that they've provided these individuals with a means to make a living wage and to support their family. That means one less family on public assistance provided not just with money, but with the dignity and pride that comes with not just work, but with a career, a career. So these graduates of Europe go from making minimum wage in quick serve restaurant or retail jobs, gives them these skills, and a year later, they're making a living wage, 17, 18, $23 an hour, and on their way to a career where they can be making six figures within a few years independence that comes from a real career. Here's something in today's day that I think is really important about Europe. No matter where you sit on the political spectrum, you will find a lot to love here. Think the economically disadvantaged need a break? Year up. Think the poor should pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Year up. It's there to benefit the most at risk in our society, but helps them with a hand up, not a hand out. These young adults work their butts off to turn their lives around and put themselves on the right path. I've been down to Europe a bunch of times. I bring my kids down there, and the students are the most optimistic, excited, grateful people just because they found a place to give them a chance. In most of these cases, it's really the first time in their lives they've been given an opportunity to prove what they can do. And isn't that all any of us wants? Yeah. And I took it for granted because I grew up in a home where even though we weren't super rich or anything, my parents were amazing and they existed to protect their kids and to prepare us for life as adults, as caring, productive adults. So back to Gerald Chertavian. Who is he? Well, Gerald earned a BA in economics, Phi Beta Kappa, summa cum laude, 
Those are six Latin words you will not find on my resume. He graduated from Bowdoin College. Then he received his MBA from with honors from Harvard Business School and received the Distinguished Alumni Award in 2016. That's a pretty good group to be distinguished among. He shares the story of how he decided to start Europe and as importantly, how he's followed through over the past, I believe, 17 years. And I know you will find his story inspiring. Full disclosure, Europe is my family's number one philanthropic priority. My wife, Stacy, serves on the board of Europe Greater Atlanta, and I know the work they do will really pay off and continue to help not just these students, but all of the United States of America. Here is my conversation with Gerald Chertavian. And in New York, having spent every Saturday of my life, at that point, what was the most heavily photographed crime scene in New York City, that taught me a great deal about opportunity who had access to it, who didn't have access to it. And so after three years of watching that up close, it helped me see that there are millions of young people in America who don't have access to opportunity, that need access to opportunity. Everyone's losing. Our companies lose. Our young people lose. Our society loses. And so I figured out, you know, I want to go back to grad school. And one of the things I want to do with that education is try to somehow attack this opportunity divide and make a difference in the lives of folks who just did not have access to opportunity for all the wrong reasons. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. There's the Times, there's the Wall Street Journal, the Guardian, and at the top there's Crazy Money. Gerald Tertavian, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you so much, Paul, for having me. Excited to be here. Gerald, when you applied to Harvard Business School in 1990, you outlined the idea for Year Up. Walk us through that, please. Sure. Well, I had um, been part of the Big Brothers Association since I was 18 years old. And uh, when I was working for a chemical bank after college, I graduated in 87. The first thing I did, in addition to get a job in New York, was to sign up to be a Big Brother. Why'd you do that? What motivated you to do that? You know, I think I was the youngest uh, of two. I had no one to boss around as a kid. I was always the youngest. Um, I always wanted to take care of someone. So ever since I was young, I mean, from 14 years old, my first job was working in camps, counseling little kids. Throughout my life, it always been one of the consistencies, working with young people, guiding them, supporting them in one way, shape, or form. So Big Brothers, when I saw it, it was a natural thing for me to do. And in New York, having spent every Saturday of my life with a boy who lived in, at that point, what was the most heavily photographed crime scene in New York City, that taught me a great deal about opportunity, who had access to it, who didn't have access to it. And so after three years of watching that up close, it helped me see that there are millions of young people in America who don't have access to opportunity, that need access to opportunity. Everyone's losing. Our companies lose. Our young people lose. Our society loses. And so I figured out, you know, I want to go back to grad school. And one of the things I want to do with that education is try to somehow attack this opportunity divide and make a difference in the lives of folks who just did not have access to opportunity for all the wrong reasons. Entrance to Harvard Business School is highly competitive, and many entrants would probably say anything to get admitted. What percentage of students who outline an ambitious philanthropic plan in an HBS application actually intend to see it through, do you think? You know, I'm guessing there's probably some fallout from the words to the actions. <laughs> I can't exactly say how much that is, but, you know, I was lucky at the age of 20, 24, 
or so, 25, I, I knew what my calling was. And that's fortunate. I mean, I think it takes many of us decades to figure out what our true calling is and what would we do if we weren't paid. And I happened to have a pretty good sense of that when I was younger. And that's just good fortune. I feel blessed to, frankly, be able to say I knew what I wanted to do when I was younger. What was your home life like as a kid? I was very fortunate. I had two uh, very loving parents. My dad worked. He was a dentist. Uh, he worked uh, pretty incessantly. I mean, he was a bit of a workaholic, you know, six days a week, two nights a week, a depression person, World War II veteran. So he grew up watching him shine his shoes every morning, go off to work and come home at night, the nights he was not working. So I learned a lot of work ethic from him. And my mom was uh, incredibly uh, just uh, empathetic, compassionate individual who uh, had a, a line a mile long for her funeral because she had touched so many people in a, in a positive way over her life. So I, I was, had a traditional upbringing in that regard of uh, two parents and uh, a mom who stayed at home while uh, dad was out working hard every day. So you came from a good family. You went to a great school, Bowdoin College. You go to HBS and you come out, but you don't start with year up right away. What kept you busy for a few years after HBS? So I got in, in just a quick story to get into Bowdoin, although my dad was a dentist, he got in on the GI Bill. Uh, mm -hmm. He'd actually not finished college, but then went to dental school um, mm -hmm. after the war. So we had our year up at my house. It was called the GI Bill. But my parents didn't know that much about college per se. So one gentleman, a high school teacher at Lowell High School, where my brother and I went, plucked both of us out of that high school and said, you guys are going to Bowdoin College. And if it wasn't for that individual, there's no way we probably would have known what that school was, what small liberal arts schools look like. I'd never really heard of Ivy League schools per se, or good schools, bad schools. My dad went to um, Lowell High School and went for a couple of years to UMass Lowell. So we had that year up, uh, and I was conscious of that, that someone paid attention. It wasn't that my parents were at all negligent. They just didn't have all the context. So after Bowdoin, I, um, I liked finance. I was an economics major. I was decent with math, and so I went to a bank. That was also luck. Most of my life's been good luck. I think, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. I try to stay open to getting lucky in life. But my sister-in-law, I'd just gotten dinged from Solomon Brothers. I got dinged from Morgan Stanley. I think I got dinged from everyone who could ding me for a job. And I was just about to go home to Boston with my tail between my legs. And I called my sister-in-law. I said, oh, it's been terrible. I didn't get anywhere down here for these interviews. And she said, you know, my old boss from Chemical, super nice guy, Doug George, great guy. Just give him a call. So I said, hey, Doug, my sister-in-law, he goes, you're, you're her brother-in-law? I said, he goes, come in and see me right away. So I went in to see him the day before I had to get on the train to go back to Boston. And he interviewed me. We connected well. He said, come back in next week. I'll put you through some good interviews with the right people. And a week after that, he said, you get a job at Chemical Bank starting the credit training program. So I got lucky. Now, mm. I happened to do well. I was you know, first person promoted to officer. I did well in my class. But the fact is, is I got my breaks. That gentleman was the one who wrote my references for Harvard Business School, which certainly helped a lot. But I came out of HBS with $100,000 of debt. I wasn't going to inherit it much money and knew I needed to get stable. And that was another time I got lucky in life is uh, the smartest guy I met at Harvard Business School said to me, go into technology. Literally, mm. I knew nothing about technology. I took one course on it in college, wasn't very good at it, but I figured I'll get the books and the read. So I educated myself on databases, on networks, on technology, on the spare time, and then ended up buying a, a small, tiny firm with two other gentlemen 
that we luckily grew successfully over about seven years and sold that in 99. What kind of work did you all do? We built customer management systems, knowledge management systems, and then like most folks in the mid-90s, we pivoted to e-commerce and we're building <laughs> platforms for companies uh, in an e-commerce platform. And so 1999, very heady days, you sell your company and you presumably don't put all your proceeds into Cisco stock at that time. Look, we sold, uh, I remember very well, we sold a business. We were the only kind of non-insiders, so we weren't locked up. The company that bought us got bought by a public company, which means we were then unlocked. We were free and clear. Everyone else was insider but us. And so I went to a friend of mine who was a block trader at Goldman Sachs. I said, look, I want to get rid of this position. And the thing is, we knew that the stock was overvalued. Uh, <laughs> and we also had a saying that bulls and bears make money and pigs get slaughtered. And we knew it was overvalued. So we weren't trying to get more value out of it. Called my buddy at Goldman Sachs and said, can you move this block of shares? As typical it is with traders, right? You're on the phone with the trader like, yeah, stay there, stay there. Goodbye. I said, okay, I'm back and gone. And then all of a sudden he goes, you're done. You don't have to work again. Um, you just put down the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I remember that very well. And I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, I just made more money than uh, you know, our family's ever seen. And he said, uh, don't get cocky. Don't think you're going to do it again quickly. And remember, you got lucky. And that was good advice because a lot of people at that point somehow made you feel like you were somehow smart or special or good. And the fact is, yeah, we worked hard, but we got lucky as well. And so I didn't hopefully get too much hubris out of that experience and realized I was fortunate. And then I could maybe use that good fortune to go back to what I really wanted to do, which is start year up. So you had that in mind the whole time. And so when yeah. you made this chunk of change, you saw it as seed capital to fund your life's vision. Totally. Yeah, I started year up, put in you know, quite a bit of uh, my own capital. I didn't take a salary for the first six years. So I was effectively funding it that way for sweat right. equity and started researching that business plan very, very soon after we made that stock transaction. I want to talk about the startup life that you had at YearUp, because it really was a startup when you think about it. Let's go deeper into depth about what YearUp is. Like, what is the vision? How would somebody in this vision come in? What experiences would you give them that would help them change their career trajectory permanently? I had the skeleton right from a very kind of early age that you're working with individuals who lack access to opportunity but have motivation. You're putting them through an intensive experience where they build professional skills and then something marketable, right? Something that there is a, a wage for, technology, finance. So those things I knew well. I also knew you needed a work-based experience that just learning something wasn't nearly as helpful as then putting it into practice. And so that internship component to me was very clear. So I, I had kind of those bones down. I knew that students who were very low income needed to earn a stipend. So that was kind of from day one. We thought about how do we support them on this journey. Pretty much everything else was added by people I hired who were smarter than I was, who had more context, more experience. And together, that startup team uh, started to really put a lot of the flesh on the bones and build out that organization with some of the things we do and take for granted today that I didn't see when I first started it. But this is an ecosystem, right? So you're in the middle of it. You're creating the vision, but you've got to connect ambitious young people who have talent but not connections. And then on the other side, you have to find organizations that need talent but aren't looking where those individuals are. How did you sell the vision to both constituencies? What you say, Paul, is totally right. Is We sit in a market 
between supply of labor and demand for talent, you know, supply of talent, demand for talent, we're effectively hacking a broken market, right? Because young people aren't connecting to those jobs today. It's not because they don't have talent. And it's not, frankly, because those companies don't want talent either. It's the market has friction in it. It's really inefficient. So what we do is go to those companies and say, look, we can give you a source of pre-trained, pre-screened, talented, motivated young people who can do a certain set of skills that we know you need. If we could show that to you, would you be willing to take a look at these young people through a kind of try-before-you-hire experience called an internship? And yes, they don't have a four-year degree yet. They may have come from backgrounds where they've experienced some challenges. But the fact is, is you need talent. We've got talent. Give us an opportunity to prove to you that our young adults can be successful. And then so we're always sitting at that nexus between speaking corporate and knowing how to work with a corporation at the same time understanding the needs of a young person who has come from a background with lower levels of readiness in certain regards, may not have had that exposure to corporations, the professional skills, and we're that market maker between supply and demand for talent, and that's now served 25,000 young people. Wow. Let's try to quantify the opportunity divide. How many jobs are out there needing people, and how many people are out there needing jobs but lacking the skills? Right now, we've got about 5 million young people who are called opportunity youth. That's between the ages of 16 and 24. They're out of school, out of work, and don't have more than a high school degree. So that's one side of the equation. It represents about 15% of all young people in this country. And it represents about 22% of all young people of color in this country. So you can imagine, you got a country today where you are mortgaging one out of five young people of color, right? Mm. Because they are out of the economy. At the same time, Right now, as we speak, there are only 0.8 people unemployed for every one job opening in the country. So you have a supply-demand imbalance right now in this country. Companies want talent. They cannot find that talent. And there is a skills gap in this country today that's going to get worse before it gets better. So you've got the conditions of a market, right? You've got supply. You've got demand. How do you get the friction out of it so that supply and demand can connect and young people can get access to livable wage jobs and lift themselves from minimum wage to meaningful careers in less than a year, which is what we do. How do you define livable wage? A number that is calculated by a, a range of groups that do this. Think of generally twice the poverty level. Okay. So if you think poverty level for a single person across countries around $10,300, well, livable wage is at least double that. What you're trying to do is get them to the livable wage as a starting place, but provide them with the skills to grow into those careers that will be multiples Absolutely. of the livable wage. Yeah, and we, we actually start at well over livable wage. So year up, our average starting salary is $40,000, right? I just saw in the last four days, I had three students start at 85000 one start at 63000 one start at 75000 all wow. in jobs and technology, all in big finance companies for the most part, uh, one big manufacturing company. This is economic justice, Paul, right? These are young people who were refugees, who were coming from some of the most isolated pockets of poverty in this country. These are young people who have suffered more challenges than you and I probably have seen in our lives combined times 10. And the fact is they're better, tougher, grittier employees. And those companies should be honored to pay them that salary because they're going to kick butt as they get there, as they've already shown over six months of an internship. 
So we know this works. There's like no doubt in our minds this works. Question is, can you scale it from 5,000 a year to 500,000 a year? Specifically, what kind of jobs are you training them for? Technology jobs, so cybersecurity, quality assurance testing, data analytics, break fix, right? Help desk desktop support, entry-level network support, entry-level engineering, software engineering, as well as other areas like project management, customer service, financial operations, healthcare management. So we work across a range of what's called middle skill jobs, right? Those jobs that above kind of 30, 35,000, probably below 50, 60,000, that you need a lot of in a people-based business. And we're trying to hit that bid, right? Where's the pain point for the company? Where's the company experiencing turnover? Where are they experiencing growth? Where are they having trouble hiring people? A lot of college grads today don't want that job that pays $40,000 a year, mm. right? They're looking for a lot more. And they, frankly, they have the debt. They have to make more. So right. we are looking specifically at a market and we're trying to hit that market successfully and make sure those young people are positioned for careers that will grow once they get their foot in the door. As I've gotten to know the organization, and as I've mentioned in full disclosure in the introduction, my wife and I have been involved for about five years, and I've been down to the site many, many times, and seen the enthusiasm, the infectious enthusiasm these young adults have about taking responsibility for their own lives and changing their own lives. And I've seen you change the conversation with employers from, hey, every one of your employees doesn't really need a four-year degree. Right. They need to have skills, both technical and social What's the role of college going forward over the next decade or so? I think you ask a profound question because we are living today in what will be looked back upon as one of the significant transition points in our society. I mean, college has existed for 300 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. Since Harvard was founded. And the fact is that we are now going into a period where post-secondary skills, degrees, credentials will be absolutely mandatory for anyone who wants to earn a wage to take care of their family. It's just they're going to be multiple pathways to get that post-secondary skills, credentials, education. So college degrees are not going away. They will continue to be there. It's just we're going to have a multitude of paths that will become more valued by employers and valuable, therefore, to those who are getting them, whether they're credential-based, whether they are competency-based degrees, you're going to see a evolution of how higher ed transports so that when we say the words college, we're not just thinking myopically, four-year, one-size-fits-all. You're going to have multiple pathways into the mainstream of this country, much more like a Northern European country than America. Somehow your father was able to fix cavities and <laughs> put crowns on without that four-year degree from UMass Lowell. That's right reading some of the Odyssey or something in, in, in lieu of, or uh, in exchange for technical skills that are actually monetizable. Yeah, he'd, he'd just say that uh, when he flunked out in two World War II men, you were getting drafted no matter what happened. So if you look at some of the biggest banks in this country, only 25% of the people they hire each year need a four-year degree or higher. I mean, it's just the reality if you look at the way their companies are structured. But mm -hmm. we've set up systems the people making the decisions went through those traditional paths, go to school, go to work, go to school at 18, graduate at 22, get a mm -hmm. job. That is not the reality for most Americans. The vast majority of Americans do not go to school at 18, do not graduate at 22 from college, and do not then go into a workforce and start working. 
less than 10% of all adults in this country live the journey I just described. How do you change that conversation? I mean, how do you get J.P. Yeah. Morgan Chase, American Express, and I mention those because the CEOs of those corporations have been involved with Europe, mm. or past CEOs have been very involved with Europe. How do you get them to start thinking and go, oh, well, maybe maybe we really don't need four-year degrees, and maybe we should be looking at the value of the individual as opposed to the value of the diploma? So for us, it was two ways. It was grass tops and grass kind of grassroots. So we had young people working in these jobs, not just a few. I mean, we'll place 400 people in the Bank of America this year. We'll place 200 wow. into J.P. Morgan, 100 in American Express. And all the kudos to their CEOs, Brian Moynihan and now Steve Squarey at Amex, Jamie at uh, J.P. Morgan, that they are willing to do this. So we built up a lot of converts, proof points. They were undeniable. At the same time, we partnered with Harvard Business School and Accenture, did two years of research, interviewing 600 HR directors and proved companies do themselves a disservice when they require a four-year degree for a job that doesn't need it. When they do that, what happens? They pay 11 to 30% more in salary. It takes longer to hire. They get less diversity and the person stays less in the job. They turn over at a greater rate. So you can prove to companies that for a big chunk of those jobs, they may want to look at recategorizing them as to whether they must have a four-year degree or whether it may be preferred or it's just it's not a red line that you can't cross. So you got to use data and you got to have stories, right? Think of what changes people's minds, data and stories. We put both of those together and as a result, some of the biggest, most well-known companies in this country have changed their hiring practices. That's what we want for all companies in America, which will open up a lot of doors of opportunity for young people. I heard about Europe from my friend Meg Garlinghouse, who runs mm. uh, Social Impact at LinkedIn. And the things that resonated with me were, this is a program that is teaching young adults to fish and that is teaching them accountability. Can you talk about what is expected of a Europe applicant, student, and graduate, please? Sure. And then I'm going to go back to your analogy and, and add one piece to the teaching to fish story. So we are very, very clear with our students to define expectations in consequences not meeting those expectations. And then we apply that fairly and consistently across all students. Students are expected to show up early. They're expected to be dressed properly. They're expected to turn in assignments on time, to be respectful. If they don't, there are consequences to that, i.e. students start with 200 points. If you showed up one second late, you could lose up to 25 of those points, which also correlates to $25 of stipend. If you get to zero points, you fire yourself from the program, right? It shifts responsibility appropriately onto the individual. So they're taught and expected to be young professionals. They learn that really fast. They get it really fast. They can pick those skills up in the time frame we have with them. But we set a very high bar and we refuse to lower the bar because it's disrespectful. Our students are talented, so therefore we will expect a lot from them. Having uh, said that, we combine that high expectations with high support. So for many of our students who need the support of a caring adult in their lives, of a potential social worker who might be able to help them parse through some of the challenges that they may have experienced. I was talking to a young man just yesterday, just yesterday at a graduation, and his sister was killed that morning. 
and he was at graduation at 5 o'clock that evening, right? That was yesterday in my life, and I could tell you a lot of stories of that nature. Our young adults go through some tough things. You need adults in their lives who will listen, help them to process things, help them to cope with some of the challenges they may face. So what you do is you combine high support with high expectations, and that is the absolute organizing theory and principle for our program, and it's why Year Up works, is because we're able to apply that in a consistent manner in 29 locations across the country. And, and go back to your analogy for a sec. You know, they say giving a man a fish is charity. Teaching a man to fish, that's, that's education. We need that. What we do is we give that man a place at the bank of the river to fish. That's justice, <laughs> right? We give our students justice, a chance to yeah. take the education and to apply it in some place where it will be seen, noticed, recognized, and they will be justly treated, which means you've got a job to take care of yourself now. Right. Let's assume that most of the people listening to this are middle class, upper middle class, or well-to-do. One of the things that I was reminded of visiting Europe is that I don't know what I don't know, or I don't see and I'm not reminded of the hardships that the majority of people in this world go through every day. So you talk about accountability, and a lot of people think about, well, personal responsibility and accountability, of course they should be on time. But getting to class on time for one of your typical students doesn't just mean you get in your car that always works and you, right. you have $10 to park at the parking deck next to the building and you walk in. It means catching three trains, two buses, and finding a way to get your child to daycare on time mm -hmm. and having a very, very tight, if any, balance at all in your bank account with which to deal with unexpected interruptions to your day-to-day -day living. You just described our students. Right? And I would argue two things, one of which their problem-solving abilities and or their toughness have been strengthened by the adversities they have faced. Right? Some people can look at someone and say, you're, you're less than, that this is a deficit model. We flip it around and say, man, if you've overcome those things and you've prospered, it's a strength-based model. You've developed strengths because of what you have experienced. I think it's a fundamental concept of how to look at what our students have figured out how to do. The second thing is we don't accept excuses. So the bus is going to be late and public transportation stinks in a lot of cities. The reality is, is you got to plan to get up earlier, right? Because I will promise you no company in America cares about excuses, right? <laughs> so you're either early or you're not. And if you're not, don't expect to have a job. So the fact is, is yes, our students have difficulty. Yes, they need support. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that they have any more slack than anyone else. And so I think helping them understand that, yes, this is tough and it will be difficult, but you are tougher. Yes, it's hard, but you are harder. And that's why, frankly, our students have been some of the highest rated interns of, of any program. I mean, look, in, in uh, Google, we're the only approved pre-baccalaureate internship program across the globe. Wow. I mean, and they'll tell you our students rank higher than most of the other internship programs they have, period. Right? <laughs> we have talent that just isn't seen. People look at our young people, Paul, and they see economic, they see social liabilities. They don't see economic assets. Right. right? We've got to change what people perceive when they look at our young people. It's fundamental, right? You have to change the perception. Who's talented? Where does talent reside? And, you know, I, I, I fit into that category as well as I don't know what I don't know. But I also know I can be part of the problem. And what, it's, what do you mean by that? 
Well, it's my perceptions that have to change. It's folks who have been in the majority, been in power, been had privilege. And, you know, I'm happy to own the privilege I have. Uh, at the same time, I'm also happy to say that I'm on a journey to try to learn things, unlearn things, and figure out uh, how can I be part of the solution. Because I've certainly been part of the problem in the past, and uh, being in power as a white male in power. You talk about stories and data. Let's talk about data. How do you know that Europe is working and ha is having a permanent change on not just the individuals, but on society? Great. You just got to my happy place. I love it. Um, I'll tell you why. So the federal government, we did a randomized controlled trial over seven years, right? This is a long time. Millions of dollars. Randomized controlled trial is the highest level of social science you can apply to studying a social problem, right? Highest level, nothing better. U.S. government came back to us and said, in the history of the United States, no youth workforce program has raised wages more then year up, period, wow. drop the mic, end of story. So <laughs> I feel damn good every day of my life that the fact is, is this program is causal. It is, creates significant impact for young people who deserve it. And we don't have to worry about, are we creaming students who would have made it anyways? Are we just correlated to success? That's, uh, as one candidate would say, malarkey. The fact is, Hey, yes. we don't use that kind of language here, Gerald. <laughs> it's a family show. Yeah, Vice President Biden seems to like the word. But the reality is, is that we know this works. And then the real question is how do you maximize impact, right? Because we are blessed to have served 25,000 young people, but that's not where my mind is right now. Our minds are on what does 2.5 million look like? Right. Like how do you really maximize impact beyond the direct service you do and that's really animated most of our go-forward strategy in Europe is where do we want to take this organization, having proven it, having shown that we can do this for young people, how do you start to add zeros to the numbers in ways that frankly will leave this country different 20 years down the road? So you asked the question, what is, what's your theory on getting there? There's two different types of impact we're trying to have now in addition to directly serving students and alumni. The first is we're trying to empower others to serve young people with the same level of efficacy that Europe is able to achieve. So we're working through other nonprofit organizations in supporting, teaching, training them. We're working at uh, developing tools and products that other people can take, which is 20 years of our intellectual property packaged in a way that others can utilize to serve. So you go from linear growth to exponential growth when you do that. So that's one way is empowering others to serve. And then the final way is you've got to change systems if you are going to ultimately close the opportunity to divide. For instance, uh, we've worked with several of the Democratic presidential candidates already. We will be working with many more over the next six months, helping them to develop policies around economic mobility, around workforce and training. What are the policies that the next president of the United States will bring to bear? and who is influencing and helping to educate around the policies that are going to help this country. So one element of systems change is from a public sector perspective. Mm -hmm. We do that every day of our lives, and we're pretty uh, effective at that. That's one type of systems change that we do today. 
how would we put year up out of business in 20 years? What, I mean, your goal should be to, to go out of business, right? So that there's not this generation, this uh, 16 to 24 year old adrift, that they actually have the skills, they have the workplace knowledge and the connections. How do you reduce the number of people who need year up services? Yeah, you can solve it, I'd say relatively simply. First is you got to invest in uh, pre-K education for all children to make sure that young children show up to school ready to read and ready to learn. That's number one. Number two is you have to start to widen the pathways through high school so that it's not just go to college or you are a loser, right? <laughs> Which is, the way, look, that's the way our country's portrayed it. You know that and that's I know that. That's what my dad said to me. Well, and, and it's a no, holdover it's from the 80s mentality. So we need right. career readiness in all of our high schools, which is a combination of awareness, exposure, and immersion activities for young people in middle and high school. So they start to know what's out there for me to start to widen the paths they can take, whether it's, frankly, whether it's military, whether it's vocational, whether it's an associate's degree, a four-year degree, a credential program. So we've got to widen those pathways so that there are multiple pathways. The next thing you need to do is you got to make sure your community colleges are more market responsive and tied to the needs of the labor market. And then the final thing you need is companies need to adapt some of their practices so that they truly develop pre-baccalaureate hiring strategies as opposed to just campus recruiting. Like mm -hmm. real deep pre-baccalaureate strategies into good jobs as opposed to, well, we go to schools for the good jobs and everyone else comes in through websites and those are the crummy jobs. That practice of big companies is going to have to change as well. So I'm telling you, this is not beyond the wits of, of woman or man to change. And we don't have to live with stagnant, economic mobility and stagnant wages in this country. And frankly, you and I both know our democracy will be challenged if we continue to go down these streets that end up in very, very different places, right? There's two Atlantas, there's two Chicago's, there's two Boston's, there's two San Francisco's, there's two New York's. One of them is a place of privilege and the other is a place of deprivation in terms of what access to opportunity you have. And that is where we're heading and it's on our responsibility to say well, that's not where we're going to end, mm. right? Because it is not good for our country. We know that, you know, and it's sad to hear of all the presidential debates we've heard to date, how much talk have you heard of jobs, economic mobility, training, access to opportunity? That has got no airtime at all. Mm. And it's probably the biggest issue facing this country today, mm. domestically. Yeah. And the impact isn't just, it's not just financial, it's psychological. Think about it. Money's not an impact, is it? Money's an outcome, right? So money is the outcome of getting a good job. The impact, think about the impact. You're healthier, right? So I was in Chicago yesterday. In Streeterville, which is a wealthy neighborhood, the uh, life expectancy is 90. In Englewood, very poor neighborhood, the life expectancy is 60. <laughs> in the same bloody city. You got a 30-year difference in life expectancy. NYU just did the study on it. So what is the impact of having a good job? You live longer and you are healthier. What's the impact? You can be a good parent because you work one job, which means you can be at home to make dinner, tuck your kids in bed and read them a story. What's the impact? You can give to your community. You can be an active citizen, right? You can contribute to making that community stronger. What's the impact? You get to learn. You can continue to educate yourself. You have time and money to do so. So the impact of the income 
is about what it is to be a citizen today, right? It's a huge deal. Now, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. They measured, Gallup did a poll. It asked Americans across this whole country, answer this question. Are you thriving, doing okay, just getting by, or struggling? Ars graduates answer that question 23% higher versus the U.S. population that they are thriving or doing okay. That's pretty cool. Do you do pre and posts on that? Uh, this was just of our graduates. I can tell you where they came in at. I just sat with a young man this morning who said, man, my life was going nowhere. I had no opportunity. At best, minimum wage. At best. I couldn't even see a way to get out of that trap. So, yeah, I will guarantee you the pre is I don't know how I'm going to get to where I'm going to get to in my life, how I'm going to take care of myself and my family, how the heck I'm ever going to get an education. I am proud our graduates are the ones now helping to lead as they grow in their careers because, frankly, they'll do a better job leading than uh, many others have. How much does it cost to get one student through year up and who pays for it? Our model where we co-locate with community colleges, which is our dominant and growing model, it's about $21,000 for a full year. The cost of that is fully financed by the revenue that companies pay to us to have access to this talent pipeline. So effectively, in our newer, more efficient model, the marginal revenue covers the marginal cost, which is great. As long as we please JP Morgan, Bank of America, Salesforce, Microsoft, Google, we're going to have a revenue stream. We probably generate $90 million this year from that revenue. But you have a significantly negative cash flow business to grow. So we spend about $30 million a year growing this business. It's highly cash flow negative to grow. And so that's a downside of it. We have to raise a lot of capital to grow. We have to raise a lot of capital to do things other than just serve students, the things I talked about, other impact strategies we have. We've got 17,000 alumni that we serve consistently over the year. So we still raise quite a bit of money in philanthropy, but we had to find a model where the marginal operating revenue would cover the marginal operating cost, without which you can't fundraise your way to get to be a, you know, a billion-dollar nonprofit in any you know, relative span of time. You've been in fundraising mode and in startup mode. Begging. I call it begging mode. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but you, you, know, you've, you, you opened one office and you moved to another city, you opened more. You're in how many cities now? 20-something, depending on how you count. 20 cities. But you've been in startup fundraising and expansion mode for 19 years. It's, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, you, almost two decades, and as fulfilling as the work must be, how do you stay motivated and focused? Yeah, so, I mean, look, our CAGR has been about 20% over 20 years. So wow. if anyone's grown a business, you know what that's like. It's tumultuous. We'll hire 350 <laughs> people this year. We had 300 people last year. Three, so you're constantly moving, and it's not easy. This... I try to say to people, don't come here for an easy life. Come here for a meaningful life. Like you're going to work really hard and it's intense and it's stressful at times. But boy, find me a place where the, the tears of joy are more real and more kind of just so palpable, poignant than here. I mean, it is just jaw dropping. My jaw still opens 20 years later when I see young people getting the economic justice they deserve taking care of their parents, taking care of their siblings. So I have more energy today than I've had ever. I've had 20 years. I've never once got tired, frankly. I love what I do. I'm fanatical about it. Definition of fanatic, you can't change your mind and you won't change the subject. 
Um, <laughs> I'm a one trick. I'm a one trick pony. But, I'm glad this is what you're a fanatic about. Yeah, and I'm lucky. You know, it's a blessing to wake up every day and run to work. It's a blessing to say I love reading, learning, doing it. You know, but at the same time, I'm a hundred percent clear that my job after 20 years is to make sure that someone else is going to be in a good position to run it for the next 20 years. How long can you stay in this position? Do you think? You know, I've been I'm pretty transparent about it. Uh, over the next kind of five six years, I want to make sure that the impact of me stepping into a different role wouldn't be significant to the company. Mm -hmm. So I don't have plans to leave or to run to do something else. What I have to do is be deliberate about building succession, being willing to step into other roles, playing a different role as the organization continues to mature. You know, if it it can't be about me, it can't be about an individual, it's about a cause and a mission. And therefore Mm -hmm. my greatest value add is to make sure that it's in better hands for the next kind of journey it's going to take over the next 20 years. So yes, I love it, but I also am blessed to have you know, three healthy children and a marriage of 27 years that frankly, I would love to spend more time doing other parts of my life as well. So I'm very lucky to uh, have other things that are deeply, deeply important. You know, And so I've got to make sure that I can step aside without causing uh, much stress on the organization. That'll, next kind of six years, I'll make sure that happens. Do you have trouble balancing the family and work life? Uh, I've been fortunate to, one, have a wife who's been a total partner in this business for 20 years. I mean, Kate volunteered two days a week for a long time. She's We've had hundreds and hundreds of dinners and events at our house, and she's been great to open up our home all the time. Uh, we have an open dinner table, so I have graduates over the house all the time for dinner. So we live in kind of a pretty interesting home environment. So I never think of, I don't think about balancing, I think about integrating, right? How do you integrate lives in ways that work? And then how do you, over the year, get a grade that you like in the various things that you are accountable for? So for me, husband, father, friend, family member, worker, right? Like, do I like my grades at the end of the year? Mm -hmm. And on any given day, I might be a C business person and an A father. And the next day, maybe I'm a C father and an A business person. But let me tell you, over the year, you don't want to end up at the end of the year and look back and say, man, I got a C in being a father or a C in being a husband, mm. because those things ain't going to make you happy in business. So <laughs> so my view is look yourself in the eye once a year, take a real hard look at getting grades that you like in the areas where you want to perform well and, and just be honest with yourself. You know, it's interesting that you say integrate because, you know, you've got a business that can help your children learn values and understand the world better. If you were selling widgets, you know, do you think you'd have the same ability or interest in integrating your work and personal life? Not at all. No, my children have grown up in a a much more diverse environment. We have, as I said, graduates over our house all the time, constantly. Mm -hmm. So my children have grown up at a dinner table that expands and contracts on a daily basis. (laughs) Right. And the conversations are authentic, right? We're not trying to sugarcoat things. Um, I remember talking to one young man about being in a gang as a young person, same age as my son at the time, and just you know realizing the choices that boy made around to join a gang, to not join a gang, what that meant, what it didn't mean. They've all worked uh, in more diverse environments for their summers. They've chosen to work in uh, justice work. I wasn't frankly pushing them there, but they have a interest in that. So... 
Yeah, I, I think the truth is you can't tell your kids what to do. They're just going to watch what you do, and they're going to learn from that. And so having them see what both I and, and uh, Kate do with our lives, because she's still heavily involved with Year Up, you know, they've just watched what we've done. I don't think you can tell someone to care or tell someone to be just. or You know, they're going to just observe how did you treat people and probably take the cues from that. In your obituary, what would a two-line summary of your work at Europe, what would you like it to say about you? Simple. Two lines in a uh, picture. Good husband, good father, and a picture of our students. I'm done. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Gerald, how can our listeners get involved with Europe? They can like write me a check for a million dollars, man. Are you kidding me? I'm raising <laughs> money. Let's get real. No, so that we have like 10,000 people who get involved as volunteers in Europe across the year. We have guest speakers who are like knock your socks off wonderful with our students and help them learn important lessons. Mm -hmm. We have mentors, thousands of mentors who spend probably one lunch every two weeks with a young person and just listen, just be a good ear, be, be a reflector for their conversations. We have tutors, we have donors, we have people who donate professional clothing right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of our students can't afford the suits and ties. So they need that professional clothing. So the reality is, is if you want to work on economic mobility, we can give you a multitude of ways to do it that would feel good and appropriate. And I would hope joyful for you. All you need to do is go to www.yearup.org, pick the city that you want to work on. We're in 20 plus cities and say, hey, look, I'd love to come down and visit. All you need to do is come visit, and I promise you, your soul will be smiling when you walk out that door. That I know to be true, and if this is your cause, man, you're going to have a good time hanging out with us. I will attest to that last statement. You know, when I walk into year, I've worked on a lot of startups, and the energy at year up is as infectious as it is at any startup, and yet it lacks the anxiety and existential risk of every startup. It is all about hope and ambition made real in the smiles and the handshakes and the eye contact of these mm -hmm. young people who are proud to show you how good they can be. It's pretty amazing what you've what you've built there with, with a lot of help, of course, but what you envisioned and brought to reality. And uh, I admire you a whole lot for your work, Gerald, and I appreciate you being with us today. Yeah. Hey, first of all, um, one, it's a privilege to, to be here. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And we appreciate all that you, your family have done for year up. And uh, I appreciate partnering with you to make this country the one we want to pass on to, to our children. That's where we're going. So thank you, my friend. Right on. So that's Gerald Chertavian, ladies and gentlemen. And after having that conversation, I feel like I need to be doing more with my life. I'm very happy to know Gerald, and he is walking the walk and making our world a better place one student at a time. I hope you'll take an opportunity to go to yearup.org, Y-E-A-R-U-P.org, to read more about the work they do and consider getting involved as a volunteer, a mentor, or as a donor. Cash is the gasoline that helps these people get to the next level. So think about it as you uh, consider what your philanthropic priorities are, yearup.org. And when you're done going there, 
Here's the segue for Paul. Go to uh, go to Crazy Money on whatever app you're listening to this to and uh, rate us. Give us as many stars as you feel you can without violating your moral principles. Write a review. Tell us what we're doing right, doing wrong. And speaking of writing, write me a note at paulollinger at gmail.com to share your thoughts on what we're doing here at the program. Speaking of the program, thank you to editor, producer, friend extraordinaire, Michael Carano. Let's post this. Yeah. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.